Hi, Internet Pals. I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. This is the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I talked with Amanda Silberling about how the founder of Spill, a new social app, secured funding after he was laid off from Twitter. A new TC writer, Lorenzo Franceschi Bicerai, talks about his illuminating scoop about a recent Google Fi hack. But first, I'll break down the top stories in tech this week. Netflix is finally actually cracking down on password sharing, for real this time. The company has provided a set of rules for how and when sharing is allowed. Basically, your account is tied to a primary location, which is defined by signing into your Netflix account on a TV connected to your home Wi-Fi. After that, as long as you connect to your Wi-Fi on another device signed into Netflix at least once every 31 days, they'll work outside of your house too. Lately, we're seeing more workarounds for two-factor authentication protection, and the latest victim is Facebook. A Nepalese security researcher identified a bug in Meta's two-factor system for Facebook and Instagram that allows anyone who knows a user's phone number to generate a working code through simple brute force attacks. The bug allowed infinite attempts to input an SMS-based two-factor code, meaning you could have just randomly generated codes until one worked. Luckily, Meta says it saw no indication that the bug was exploited in the wild before it was patched. More on TC from Lorenzo Franceschi Bicerai. OpenAI has launched the paid version of its immensely popular AI text generation chatbot, ChatGPT. The service is called ChatGPT Plus because everything that costs money is called Plus, and it costs $20 per month and provides unlimited access and better response times. It also offers paid users first dibs on new features and improvements as they become available. More on this from Kyle Wiggers on TechCrunch. Twitter changes continue under Elon Musk's reign with free access to the Twitter API as the latest casualty. Starting February 9th, there will only be paid options for developers looking to plug into Twitter, which will have tremendous impact for current users of its developer tools. It's definitely a way the company could make more money, but likely at the cost of a lot of existing use beyond the platform. More from Yvonne Mehta and Manish Singh on TechCrunch. First up, Amanda Silverling talks about how Spill secured funding after the founder was laid off from Twitter. Hey, Amanda, how's it going? It's going. Cool, yeah. <laughs> it's been, I think we're in a, the post New Year's time frame always feels strange to me in tech land. It's like there's a lot of things about to happen, but not a lot of things actually happening. That's really deep. I think it's deep, sure, yeah. Yeah. But we had some exciting news Pretty fast news for this company, Spill. You covered kind of their original intent to do this late last year. Mm-hmm. And now we've got an update that this social app is got some funding, right? Yeah, which is very quick. They announced that they were a company in December, which they did mm-hmm. on TechCrunch, a great website. Yes. Basically, it is alum from Twitter who, of the two founders, one Alfonso, who goes by Fonz, Terrell, was the head of social and editorial at Twitter. And then Daveris Brown actually left in 2020, whereas Fonz got laid off in the, when everybody got laid off from Twitter. The great call. Yeah. And Daveris Brown is like the CTO, very like, knows the tech stuff, Mm -hmm. does the tech things. That's what CTOs do. I think that a lot of people resonated with what they're building because you have two Black founders that are building a social platform, not just as like ex-Twitter employees who are saying, we can do this better and make something new that people are going to be excited about. But Mm -hmm. also I think that 
We don't really have many social platforms with Black founders, let alone just like companies with Black founders, period, as Dominic has been covering with how there's such a disparity of Black founders getting funding. So I think it's really fun to see them building something where they are bringing their culture and identities into it, like in the physical tech stack, thinking about like, how do you do AI content moderation if the AI is like built by Black people who know how Black people talk, whereas there are studies that show that on more legacy social platforms like Twitter, people that are speaking in AAVE are more likely to be flagged as being offensive falsely. And yeah, there's just a lot of really exciting things going on with Spill that I think has resonated with a lot of social media users. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you bring up a lot of good points about like Twitter is a good example, but it's almost any company like the DEI is like kind of an afterthought, right? And the mm-hmm. tech thing is sort of a layer applied later on or like a corrective action. And that plays into fundamentally yeah, like how it's architected, right? And it's not super effective when it's just kind of, oh, let's like do this too at the end as opposed to like closer to the metal in like tech speak, right? Where it's like, oh yeah. Yeah, and I think especially on social media, a couple years ago, I think a really good example of a problem in social media is when there was the Black creator strike on TikTok, Mm -hmm. where there was just a trend in which TikTok dances are obviously like a very popular thing on the app. And a lot of these dances were made by Black creators. And then you'd have like very popular white creators take the dance and not give any credit. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly this dance goes viral and the person who actually made the dance is getting no credit or recognition. So then Black creators had like a strike where they were like, we're not going to dance until something changes and now like dance crediting is a bit more like part of the tiktok culture Mm. but but not like technically embedded right it's still essentially relying on how users employ the platform or is did they build like kind of tech i don't believe so right i don't think there's like a way built into TikTok to give dance credit. Because mm. also, I mean, dancing is just like one part of TikTok, which I do think sometimes people are like, oh, TikTok is just dancing. And I'm like, people do do that. But like, I don't know. Um, There's a lot the point, of, but, what's it called? Get ready with me shit. That's not yeah. necessarily dancing, right? So I don't know. I don't know anything no. about this, man. <laughs> that's, oh God, that's so, oh, God, this is a whole tangent, but like something that we could have covered, I think, but did not was there is such a trend of people that are like, day in the life of my job at Google. And it's just basically like Google corporation porn, for lack of a better word, where it's like, look at these great lunches I have and my ping pong table and the shuttle from Google I take to the office. And then people started getting laid off. And then now people are doing like day in the life as someone who got laid off from Google. It's like, I wake up and I'm depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it really is just like a microcosm of what's going on in tech right now that you have these TikToks where people are like, well, I was glorifying Google like two months ago and now I'm laid off and I don't know what to do. But that's not related to spill, but that's just, <laughs> this is the educate Daryl about TikTok segment of the TechCrunch podcast. Yeah. And I value these parts of the TechCrunch podcast. I think they're the most important parts. I think so do the listeners. I think people need to know about get ready with me TikTok. Yes. Yeah, for sure. 
But back to Spill. So I think, I mean, what I thought was interesting in the whole article is interesting. Everyone should read all of it. But one thing I thought was interesting related to what we were just talking about is the incorporation of like blockchain, which it seems like it's not a blockchain startup, which I, great. That's great. I think that's the right tack to take right now is to not kind of like chain yourself to that particular thing. Because I've seen this in other creator related startups and spaces where they're like, look, this is the best way we have right now to do provenance. So we're going to use it to do provenance so that we can architect in that credit, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's the approach they're taking. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that is a good summary of that. I do think it's very funny the hoops that you have to jump through as a founder when you're catering to an audience that is inherently distrustful of blockchain for what I think is good reason. But I think basically what Fonz is saying is like, this is actually a good way of tracking how one piece of content influences another and how trends get disseminated across a social platform. And it's really interesting to see how he sort of has to hedge the way he talks about that. Because when I wrote about them last month, They mentioned that as well. And then I think even in that article, I had quoted him as being like, no, this is not blockchain. This is just one tool we are Mm -hmm. using as part of the product. And I would compare it to AI in the sense of right now, AI is a huge buzzword because of, you know, there just always has to be a buzzword for whatever reason. But AI is incorporated in so many products where we don't even see what the AI is doing. Right. But then people get very nervous about AI when you see things like how stable diffusion is ripping off artists. Mm -hmm. And I think those are valid concerns. But I think that with both AI and blockchain, we're not really seeing the ways in which this is technology that can just be used to improve a product. And blockchain does not imply the use of cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate because it has all the scammy implications and more so now than ever, right? Because like that's basically the reason crypto is in the news lately is because yeah. of our, you know, frequent subject of discussion, SBF and other people like that. But I think that like what your article brought to mind was we had on the founder of Zest World, which is like a comic book creator centered platform on the Found podcast. Uh, I can plug too that go listen to the Found podcast if you haven't. But what he was talking about was like they use crypto in kind of the same way. Like it's a necessary part of the tech stack right now because it's the best way you have to kind of track where something originated and then give credit back to that person. And What Chris said at the time was like, if something better comes along that does that, we'll use that instead. Like, it's just like, this is what we have. And it actually is really good at that, despite all the other associations that it has, right? So we're going to use it in that capacity. But it seems like that's also the the aim at Spill, which I really respect. Because it's like, yeah, if you want to try to do that, try to do that. And right now, at least based on what I know, that is definitely the best way to actually accomplish that and have it be kind of like, Immutable? Not not necessarily immutable, but less manipulable, I suppose, than other ways, right? Yeah, I think it's something that they're building with the intent of trying to protect and reward creators. And I think people are just rightfully so skeptical because we've seen crypto go so wrong so much. But even like in our initial interview, I had asked them, does this mean like if creators are getting payments, are they getting paid in 
Solana or whatever. I don't know what blockchain they're using. Yeah, some made-up token. Sure, right. Yeah, but then he said, no, they want to keep payments, like, in dollars. Awesome, yeah. Which Also made up, by the way, (laughs) just in case crypto people are listening to this and are like... Oh, yeah, I mean, dollars are made up, but... Well, Listen, actually, we know, we know. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting on my fedora and I'm tipping my fedora and saying, well, actually, but, you know, the thing is, is that dollars are a lot more stable than right. other currencies that are more made, made up. up a lot longer ago. And yeah, <laughs> they've accumulated a certain amount of stable value in the interim time. But yes. Well, what about USDT? I think that's, uh, you know, it's a stable coin. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That <laughs> that's some crypto humor for our crypto. That means it's rock solid. <laughs> See, this is we're we're gonna do our stand up routine when you're uh, like it's like your stand up at the TC crypto event. Oh God, don't remind anyone. No one looked that up, by the way. I would have done the same exact thing. Like if I were in your shoes, I would get up there and be like, I joined this Zoom call and was testing the microphone and was like, so what's the deal with airline food? <laughs> Uh, yes, we do. In case you guys listening haven't come to any of our events, you should just for the entertainment uh, that we yeah. provide. There's a lot you'll understand once you actually do come to one of these things. Uh, tickets for Disrupt on sale now. <laughs> Anyways, I did want to also talk about kind of like when they think that this might come out. Because I did go reserve my name. You can do that right now, right? And you just mm-hmm. basically put in your username and your email and I think if it's available, they basically confirm right away, like yours is reserved. So you can come back when we're ready to launch. But do they give you any idea of when they're ready to launch? They're going to launch an alpha in this quarter. And I also think the journalism meta, if you will, going on here is typically we would not cover a company that is like, we're building something. It's not out yet, but wait. But I right. think Spill transcended that threshold because it is just so interesting and mm-hmm. such like a compelling story to think about like what are all the people that got laid off from Twitter doing and what are they building that is going to compete with Twitter. Yeah. And I think it's super interesting. It, yeah. it merits early coverage, especially because it's kind of like not just like, oh, we took we're just doing Twitter, but like better. They're like, we took this whole aspect of Twitter, which is like probably undercovered and vibrant and like shows some of the best examples of community on the platform. And then we're going to like make that the basis for this, but also with like key underlying improvements to it. So it's, it's definitely super interesting. Yeah. And I think they're trying to build this in the spirit of being a successor to black Twitter, which is basically just the community of black people on Twitter, which like has been a very productive, like, cultural producer and community Mm -hmm. like there are so many memes that people use on a daily basis that they have no idea were like things that came out of black twitter and it's like the tiktok thing where it's very undercovered how black people are so often at the forefront of pushing internet culture forward but then you know white people ignore it because right because white people, I say, as a white person. Yeah, I think it's it's almost not an oversimplification to just kind of like TikTok, but for maybe my demographic, let's say, it's like if you look at Instagram's Explore tab and you're like, oh, this is all so funny. It's like, yeah, that was from Black Twitter from like three years ago and no one kind of mm-hmm. like realized it. And now it's percolated over here and you're kind of adopting it as your culture. And I imagine something yeah. similar is happening in TikTok, right? 
Yeah, and I think this also doesn't mean that this platform is, like, only for Black people. But I think that traditional social platforms are essentially built with white people in mind. And it's fun to see how it'll work when something is built with more diverse people in mind and not just, Mm -hmm. like, a bunch of white engineers making something and not considering how when you're building a product, if you don't have diverse people building the product, you're going to have a lot of blind spots. And that ultimately makes it a less good product, I think. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks very much, Amanda. I'm very excited to see what Spill comes up with like for all the reasons you just outlined. And yeah, we'll probably check back in once it's time for it to launch. Yeah, me too. I'm excited because I reserved at Amanda. Oh, I got at Daryl. Nice, you know nice. I did. That's it's great. Really, the the best part about covering social media is that when there's new platforms, then you're like, well, I'm just going to reserve a good handle just in case. It's <laughs> the only reward, really. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, I talk with Lorenzo Franceschi Bicerai about the impact of a recent Google Fi hack. Hey, Lorenzo, how's it going? Hi, Daryl. How are you? Good. I'm good. Yeah, it's been a it's been a week. That's for sure. You had a great scoop on the site that is about Google Fi and the hack that happened to Google Fi recently, and one victim in particular and the circumstances around that. Do you want to kind of run us through that story? Yeah, so just to start, uh, this is about a recent incident that Google Fi disclosed. Uh, We believe it's connected to the recent T-Mobile hack, and that's because Google Fi runs on T-Mobile and Sprint. They don't have their own, um, you know, their own cell phone towers. To me, this was interesting, first of all, because I think I and a lot of other people assumed that Google Fi was a little bit more resistant to this kind of attacks because they don't have a local, you know, they don't have a actual physical stores when people can just walk in and pretend to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. Their customer support, in theory, is a little bit more security-oriented. So it was a little surprising that this happened, and especially that this particular incident happened. We spoke to someone who is a Google Fi subscriber, and on January 1st, he noticed that someone was hacking it. The first thing he saw was that someone had reset the password on their Coinbase account, mm-hmm. which was suspicious because he has he had not done that. Then he lost, he lost cell phone service and also noticed that someone had reset his password on uh, his Outlook account. Mm-hmm. The way that the attackers were able to do this was that they essentially exploited a vulnerability that is in a lot of other services. You know, some internet services rely on text messages as a way to reset passwords. Right. And so we don't know yet how they did this, but the hackers took control of his phone number. That's why he lost his cell phone coverage, cell phone service. And at that point, they could just trigger SMS resets from there. Hmm. So the hackers first went to Coinbase, which is pretty expected because usually these are like financially motivated attacks. They wanted to get his crypto, essentially. We don't know if they knew who he was meaning that they specifically targeted him because they believed he had a lot of crypto. This is pretty common in this kind of attacks. When we spoke to this person, he wasn't sure about this. It could also just be that they, I don't know, they just chose randomly. But I don't know. The fact that they went immediately after Coinbase tells me that they probably knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So effectively, they were able to do, I think, what is typically known as like a SIM swap attack, right? And you talked about how that is very unusual in this case because it's often done through 
social engineering. Like you walk into the T-Mobile and there's a college student or whatever, they're working there and you're like, oh man, my like SIM doesn't work and whatever. And you just kind of like give them a sob story and they say, oh, right. Okay. No problem. What's your number? I'll activate it on this new SIM and they hand it to you. But that's not how Google file (laughs) works. Right. So there's a big mystery about how they were able to get specifically like the replacement SIM or the SIM that they were using to swap activated. And Google hasn't been forthcoming about what details there might be there, right? Yeah, unfortunately, Google did not answer our questions. Our questions were pretty simple. We just asked what happened to this person, to this victim, were the hackers able to, or rather, how did the hackers transfer his cell phone service to another SIM card? Other than him, did the hackers transfer anyone else's mobile service? And also, how many Google Fi customers were affected? Google Fi notified their subscribers about this data breach, the one, you know, the general one. The man in this case got a personalized email where they talked about an attack on January 1st that lasted for an hour and 48 minutes. So at that point, you know, when when this happened in January 1st, he had no idea how it even happened. He thought that maybe it was some sort of other attack, maybe some malware, who knows. But then, you know, this week he finally found out that actually it was because of Google Fi. And yeah, we don't know how they actually did it. And uh, it would be great to know. And also be great to know if there's other people that were, you know, that were specifically targeted by these hackers. Right. Because of the way that Google's communicating or not communicating rather about this. We don't know whether it was a case of one, like when he got, he's the only person who got that personalized email or whether other people also got that. What is typically... Why does a company remain tight-lipped about this kind of thing? I know it's kind of asking you to speculate, but what kind of reasons do companies usually have for kind of keeping these things under wraps? You know, they could maybe say, you know, we, don't, we want to protect the privacy of our customers, but, you know, we're not asking them to mm. name them, obviously. I think more likely is that they don't want to look bad. You know, as far as I know, this is the first time that Google Fi suffered a, an incident like this. And so maybe they don't want to let people know how, how bad it was. Although I think it would be easy for them to blame T-Mobile. Right. Just say, well, this wasn't really our fault. But maybe, maybe it was our, their fault because that's why they're not talking. Or maybe they're not ready to disclose the numbers. Maybe they don't even know how many people have been uh, affected. And the fact that they emailed this person with specific details about their attack makes me think that they probably know what happened to others as well. You know, I don't think the investigation mm-hmm. is still ongoing. This was a few weeks ago, otherwise they wouldn't have sent the emails. So yeah, maybe they'll come up with a, you know, maybe they're finalizing a blog post uh, with more details that they will publish later on. You know, Google is usually very forthcoming in terms of um, incidents that happen right. with Android, for example, or, yeah, Chrome, vulnerabilities in their services. So who knows, maybe it's uh, some issue with timing and they're not ready to talk yet. Right. But as it stands right now, especially, I mean, if I was a Google Fi customer, I would be very concerned about this because, it's, you know, I don't know necessarily what actions I can take to protect myself from something like this, right? And I think the person you spoke to kind of articulated the same thing, right? Like there are things you can do, including not using SMS for two-factor, which is, I think, the general advice anyway for personal security procedures. But that doesn't, there are some places that don't let you do that. I think he brings up the example of banks, but there are other institutions too. Yeah, my banks don't let me use an authenticator app or a security key. It's just SMS or calls. So, you know, it's vulnerable to some swapping. I've always wondered why banks don't let you do that because you would think that they're the ones that don't want this to happen the most because if you lose money, then they are liable to give it back to you. It's actually one of those cases where the victim doesn't really... I mean, it's it's awful for a few days. You know, you, you lose money and you're unsure whether you get it back, but because of financial regulations, the banks will give it back to you. So it would be an easy yeah. way to basically 
avoid these kind of attacks. As you said, I wouldn't. I would so speculate that it might be ineptitude. <laughs> Could be <laughs> banks. I mean, they're just, they're very large and slow moving. Uh, at least here in Canada, yeah. they are because they have like a near monopoly. Yeah, yeah, although some banks have really good security teams, so it's uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, as you said, the general advice is try to avoid SMS. But yeah, it could not be the case. Also, you know, it is a good like fallback option. You know, let's say that you lose your iPhone or you lose your phone with the Authenticator app. The Authenticator app doesn't allow you to like activate it on the phone. Then you do SMS. You know, that's it's very consumer friendly. Another advice that I always give is to, and this depends, I think it, this only works if you're in the US, it's to use a Google voice number, so a VoIP number instead of an actual phone number, because mm-hmm. those cannot be SIM swapped. And those are tied to your Google account. So if someone wants to take over that number, they need to take over your Google account first, which is not that easy. And, um, you know, there's other options outside of the US. I think Skype still offers phone numbers. There's other services. I think that's a great way to essentially completely eliminate the chance that you're going to get SIM swapped because, you know, you can still get SIM swapped, but that number is not tied to any of your sensitive uh, accounts. Yeah, yeah, actually. Um, yeah, you don't have to rely on cell phone providers. Skype does do that in other countries. And I, I have a Skype number for basically, well, not the specific purpose, but um, it can work in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what I did years ago when I wrote about SIM swapping and I was like, okay, these guys are going to target me. I'm just going to not give them a chance and live uh, uh, more relaxed. Yeah. Another thing on this story that I wanted to ask was you're looking for other potential victims, right? And so do we want to put that out there? I know you have it in the article, but just in case any listeners who are five subscribers who might be listening want to provide any more information or experience something similar, uh, how can they reach us? Yeah, they can reach me on Twitter at LorenzoFB. On Twitter, I have all my contact information, my signal number, email, other you know, Telegram and other apps, whatever the people prefer. I've spoken with a couple of Google Fi subscribers, but they were not like specifically targeted. They just got the general mm-hmm. email, you know, you were part of this, uh, this attack. You know, presumably it was only a few people. So it's, you know, the chances of uh, them maybe reading the article are not that big, or maybe they want to talk about it. It's possible. Also, you, people usually don't like to admit that they were hacked, even though, you know, in this case, it's really not their fault. Right. So in most cases, the, the victim is not at fault. Yeah. In a hack, so. And in this case, too, did the specific victim, is there anything that he could not, like, did he suffer any significant consequences? Was his Coinbase essentially emptied out or anything like that? He got lucky because the attack didn't last too long, and also he was responding to it. He got lucky, I think, because he had the Authy, the Authenticator app, connected to mm-hmm. his Coinbase account. In one way that I actually was unlucky because the hackers were able to add a new device to his Authy account because by uh. default, by default, Authy allows people to add a new device if they control the phone number linked to Authy. This is by default. So if you use Authy, I would suggest disabling this, but also know that if you disable this and you lose your phone, then it's going to be a pain in the ass to get your two-factor codes. You know, again, it, this is a classic example of when uh, security is not compatible with the uh, user user friendliness. Obviously, it's great to right. have a, It's the convenience versus uh, security. Yeah. A never-ending battle, right? <laughs> Yeah, but you know, if you have like millions of dollars in your Coinbase account or Binance account and it's tied to Authy, then I would consider this. There's other ways to get your two-factor accounts back. Or maybe don't don't use Authy. I mean, Authy is great, but there's other two-factor apps like uh, Authenticator by Google allows you to migrate to a different phone. I think yep. you have to you have to have control of the previous your old phone, but yeah, I mean, there's that, a lot of uh, authenticator apps, uh, nothing against Authy, but if you're using Authy, then maybe you might want to disable that 
future. Yeah. It sounds like in general, you know, especially as the stakes start to raise, like you should consider being more conservative and less less convenience oriented, right? But yeah. Yeah. And again, it's uh, if you get like a VoIP number, then uh, a lot of problems go away. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Lorenzo. Appreciate you coming on and not only outlining the story, but also giving some practical advice. And I'm sure we'll talk to you again in the future. Thanks, Daryl. Nice talking to you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. You can read all of the stories we talked about at TechCrunch.com and be sure to use our TC Plus promo code TC Podcast, all one word, to get 20% off on both annual and two-year terms. Check out all the other TC podcasts, including Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. We'll be back next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.